You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Kaseya continues to work through remediation of the VSA vulnerability exploited by R-Evil with completion expected Sunday afternoon. And while R-Evil has made a nuisance of itself, this time they may not have seen a big payday, at least not yet. The U.S. is still considering its retaliatory and other options in the big ransomware case. China's MSS is active against targets in Asia. Andrea Little Limbago from Interos looks at government access to data analysis. Our guest is Leon Gilbert from Unisys with data from their Digital Workplace Insights report. And scammers are baiting their hooks with Black Widow lures. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 9th, 2021. We begin with an update on R Evil's exploitation of Kaseya's VSA. Kaseya CTO Dan Timpson posted a video late yesterday afternoon in which he provided a high-level overview of the steps the company was taking to fix the problems with its VSA software, whose modular design he credited with helping limit the scope of the attacks by R-Evil. Timson made a point of listing the organizations Kaseya was working with as it responded to the ransomware attack. Mandiant, including its affiliate FireEye, the FBI, CISA, and DIVD, as well as with partners, customers, and researchers. Kaseya has fixed the vulnerabilities in both on-premises and cloud versions of VSA, he said, documented the updates, and had them peer-reviewed by the partners the company has engaged. A post on Kaseya's site indicates that patches for VSA's on-premises version are still scheduled for release this coming Sunday, July 11th, at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. That's also when Kaseya intends to begin deploying the fixes to its VSA software-as-a-service infrastructure. There's some question as to how successful the responsible R-Evil affiliate has actually been this time around. It's clearly succeeded at infecting both direct customers of Kaseya as well as those customers' customers, the downstream victims of nth-party risk, The Wall Street Journal reports that ransomware infestations connected with the exploitation of Kaseya had, by yesterday, been found in six European countries. The record reports that Kaseya's president and general manager for EMEA, Ronan Kirby, addressing a meeting convened by Belgium's CERT, those six countries were the UK, the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden, Norway, and Italy. 
Eight of the 60 direct customers affected by the campaign are in Europe. Kaseya still thinks there are between 800 and 1,500 total downstream victims, that is, customers of the MSPs who use Kaseya's VSA. But it's not clear how well the extortionists have actually done in collecting the ransom they've demanded. Bleeping Computer has found only two victims who've paid any ransom at all, and so concludes that the responsible R-Evil affiliate is unlikely to get the big payday they're hoping for. R-Evil went after the software itself, the better to cast a broad net, and so passed up the now customary step of wiping or encrypting backups. So the victims may have simply opted to restore from backups and bite the bullet on any doxing that may develop later. Unless, of course, there's some under-the-radar GoFundMe campaign that's quietly raising the $50 million the bad guys want. No, that's, that's not going to happen. A U.S. response to the ransomware campaign remains under consideration. Security Week writes that the U.S. administration faces pressure to do something about R-Evil's campaign, and it's clear that doing something increasingly means taking a whack at Russian interests with U.S. military organizations doing a good bit of the whacking. The Pentagon has been circumspect about what it might be called upon to do. A Defense Department spokesman on Tuesday declined to discuss specific U.S. Cyber Command capabilities, plans, or infrastructures. The spokesman said, quote, We are all mindful of these growing threats to national security as well as to civilian infrastructure. We believe a U.S. response to those threats has got to be whole of government, end quote, as opposed to a purely military response. In this case, whole of government would probably mean, especially, the intelligence community and the departments of state, justice, treasury, and commerce. More coverage of this incident can be found on our CyberWire website. Recorded Futures Insect Group reports finding what appears to be a Chinese cyber espionage campaign active against targets in Nepal, Taiwan, and the Philippines. The threat group, which Recorded Future tracks as Threat Activity Group 22, TAG 22, is interested in telecommunications, academic, research, and development, and government organizations in the three countries. It's also taken an interest in an airport and a university located in Hong Kong, The researchers believe TAG-22 used compromised glassfish servers and cobalt strike for initial access, subsequently switching to its own bespoke backdoors for long-term persistence. They see some overlap with other activity other research groups have tracked. In particular, the infrastructure and the malware used against the targets in Hong Kong are significantly similar to WinT Group activity reported by ESET and NTT Group. There are also some commonalities with the operation against the Mongolian certificate authority, Monpass, that Avast described, especially the deployment of Cobalt Strike. The shadow pad and Winti backdoors that were used to establish persistence have been used by the operators FireEye calls APT41 and that Microsoft calls Barium. Winti has been a particular favorite of contractors working for China's MSS, its Ministry of State Security. The different operations have different objectives, but the campaign against targets in Taiwan seems most clearly focused on industrial espionage pursued in the interest of furthering Beijing's economic goals.
Microsoft has issued a clarification regarding the patch it issued this week for the CVE 2021-34527 Windows Print Spooler Vulnerability, that's Print Nightmare. Redmond says the patch is working as designed and urges users to apply it. The Microsoft Security Response Center investigated reports that the patch was ineffective and concluded that, quote, All reports we have investigated have relied on the changing of default registry settings related to point and print to an insecure configuration, end quote. And finally, devotees of the Marvel Universe, are you looking forward to the new Black Widow movie? It premieres today, you know. Of course, you know, moviegoers, we are not judging. There's no shame in being a fan. Some of us may already have our tickets. But use caution and discretion when you enjoy. Tech Republic and others are circulating a warning, courtesy of Kaspersky, that scammers are baiting their hooks with a lot of Black Widow bait. Steer clear especially of offers of early, free, or pirated streaming of the flick. Movies aren't distributed via executables attached to an email, nor does watching one normally require you to reveal your name, address, passwords, grandmother's maiden name, and so on. As always, fewer beware. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Coming out of the pandemic, workplace conversations are shifting to office reopenings, who's coming back and how often. And many employees report they like the flexibility of working from home and having more control over their schedules. The folks at Unisys recently published results from their latest Digital Workplace Insights report, which looks into these issues. Leon Gilbert is Senior Vice President and General Manager of Digital Workplace Services at Unisys, and he joins us with their findings. The creation of the report really came from where is the world going post-COVID? We all knew that eventually um, you know, the vaccine would come along, and we wanted to 
sponsor this report to say, okay, well, where, where's the world going to go with regards to work? What are people going to do after, you know, the, the vaccine is complete and people start to think about what does work look like going forward? So that was, that was our rationale for thinking about, you know, let's, let, let's do this piece of research and let's think about, you know, what, it, what is next for, for digital workplace and, and, and next for employees of, of companies. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting report for sure. One of the things that struck me was uh, more than once, there's uh, some disconnects between what the employees are saying are important to them and what the business leaders are saying are important to them, or or at least how they're coming at some of these questions. Can you take us through some of those things that you found? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a very valid question. You know, I think you you look at some of those responses where you see the business the business leader uh, says one thing and the employee says something else. But I think um, there there are some as well, uh, Dave. Where you know there is a I would say there's a correlation, but there are there are absolutely some where you know if I take for example one of them where I think fifty one percent of business leaders. And but but sixty four percent of employees agree that a work location schedule is most conducive to family life and an ideal experience, right? But you know it's only fifty percent of those business leaders, but sixty four percent of the employees. So there is definitely a a gap there. I think if, if I think about this a more holistic basis, I think the race for talent in this global economy is huge. And business leaders really start to need to start to really understand what their employees are looking for um, and what you know what benefits and that actually benefits them. It's not no longer just a monetary discussion in my mind. I was reading something yesterday that that you know that said that uh, I think people uh, even with a thirty thousand uh, dollar salary increase, they would rather actually work from home. And actually get the monetary increase, which I found, you know, astounding when I sat back and thought about it. But actually, it's true. I think people, you know, have found that uh, they haven't skipped a beat since they've actually been at home, which is which has been hugely beneficial for companies. And I think it's opened a lot of people's eyes out. But there is still some some thought process there that you know people have to be in the office. For me, Dave, I think it is a it is a mix, right? You're going to get what I would term a hybrid, where you you have some in the office, some at home, and you maybe do two days on, three days off, and I think uh, that that also you know benefits both employee and employer, and I think that's that's where I, I I see this industry, you know, I see you know the economy and the, the kind of world going. Yes, for sure, Dave, you're going to get some companies where it's five days a week back in the office, thinking mm. about banking, financial institutions. But others, right, I, I think will be a lot more flexible and they should be if, if they want to retain and attract the talent. Yeah, some of the other findings in the report that were particularly interesting to me were you focused on communications between employers and the business leaders and, and how both of them uh, value communication. But, um, you know, some some it seemed like the, the leaders uh, were having a little more challenge with the uh, communication than some of the employees were yeah i i think you know with the uh, with the advent of you know all of the of what we term the collaboration and communications tools let's just take zoom as an example right zoom isn't just about talking to your grandmother and and doing fitness classes right it is it to me it's about it's a you know it's the way that people have learned to communicate through this pandemic and but i think it's the way that people will start to to 
you know, primarily will will communicate going forward, whether it's Zoom or other platforms, Teams, example. But to 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 me and to us as an organization, what is crucial is that we that companies need to start thinking about what is that experience, right? Is what is that you know the two people aren't left in a in a disparity, right? We want digital parity, but we also want experience parity. I think that was one thing that we saw during the research is, you know, that, and what's important to us is around the, the experience parity and and whether you're in an office, whether you're at home, that you are, you know, you have that same experience of 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 those tools and you know, and how you start to, you know, you don't want it where if you're in the office, you know, it, it doesn't work as well as at home. One thing we have to remember, Dave, when people start to go back to the office and start to use these tools, many offices weren't built for 200 people suddenly on video, right? Mm. So their network mm-hmm. isn't necessarily <laughs> strong enough if you think about that. So it's companies are going to have to start thinking about their bandwidth. How do they measure that? And does that cause a disparity between those who are actually at home versus those who are in the office? So there's, right. there's lots of factors to kind of in this new hybrid world. That's Leon Gilbert from Unisys. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. With Identity Orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She is Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, I want to check in with you today on, I think, what we can perceive as being a growing trend of government access to data um, and this whole notion of do governments need back doors or not. What can you share with us today? Yeah, I just uh, completed uh, a study looking at, at the country level, what governments are doing in the area of mandating government access to data. And so you can think about on the one hand, you know, we, we hear an awful lot, you know, every single day about, you know, about governments hacking into other systems and going in illegally. But for uh, across the globe, we're really starting to see a growing trend of governments basically putting within their cybersecurity and uh, internet laws the mandate that they can access data when they want to. And it ranges, I and mean, there's a whole spectrum of, you know, from very well codified rule of law 
We need to have access. We need to show a warrant, and then we want to have access within very discrete circumstances to basically, you know, non-transparent. If a government comes to a company that is based in that country and says we need this data, you are required by law to turn it over. And so it has huge private sector implications. And that's you know one of the aspects that I really wanted to look at was you know as you know the private sector is starting to think about where they're located across the globe in different ways than they used to previously. You're looking at how the regulatory frameworks of those countries should impact those decisions. And I, I look at this as yet another cyber risk when thinking about um, you know, your, your global footprint. So it is something that is growing uh, with, with more and more countries starting to require that kind of access. And to be clear here, I mean, we're talking about democracies, right? I mean, this, different democracies are treating this in different ways. Uh, so it's all so it's across the board. And so that's where I'd say, so on the one hand, you know, you have democracies that are not at all um, allowing a lot of this, or if they do, it's a, you know, very, it's a scalpel, very transparent, all the way over to, you know, China has their, their law that would, actually was interesting that um, the U.S. National Counterterrorism, our counterintelligence and security center actually tweeted about China's laws on, if you are a company and you're based in China, here's some legal frameworks you need to be aware of as far as they, their security laws require access to that data. And so I think it's actually interesting that you know, we have counterintelligence aspects of our government warning about other countries' laws and access to it. But those are kind of the, the extremes. But you know, within the last few days, Mauritius, which is a fairly solid democracy, if you look at like on you know, Freedom House and other kinds of democracy scales, they're a pretty solid democracy. And they just, just announced that they're exploring basically putting a certificate on all the laptops to do sort of you know, like a man-in-the-middle kind of access to encrypted data and decrypting it and having just complete access across the board if they want to. And Where so, is this? In Mauritius. Wow. So that's you know one of the ones that kind of like to me is 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 a striking outlier because it is you know a fairly solid democracy, but then it's taking in these tools of the authoritarian playbook, and that's what we see more and more. We see these tools being brought in. Um, you know, India is another good example where you have sort of this push towards you know greater data protection, but at the same time, internet blackouts, more surveillance going on. Um, even greater concerns about those kinds of uh, information access and control. And so it's really, you know, it's something absolutely keep an eye on. Eye on. When, we, when we talk about the regulatory frameworks that are going on, we often think about data privacy laws, and that's great. Um, those are absolutely something that for companies and you know, governments to be aware of. But sort of the reverse is there true, where, you know, under the auspices of you know, greater security, national security, and so forth, uh, you may have to turn over your data. And it's not just your data. You know, it's not just you know, asking here and there for perhaps for like social media access and, and passwords and so forth. You know, at times it's source code. Hmm. That's the end. Russia has the source code requirement. And so companies have had to do that. And so that's, it diffuses across the globe. And I, you know, I think that's probably one of the more troubling aspects of it is that, you know, these models and these tactics don't just stay, you know, within, within your, you know, the, the core. You think, you think about, you know, China, Russia, North Korea, and Iran. But those tactics really are starting to get adopted elsewhere. I mean, Vietnam has a very, strict cybersecurity law they passed in 2019 for much larger surveillance, you know, forcing governments and uh, companies to comply with data access when uh, approached. Um, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, like there's a just, it's a growing number that are really starting to apply a whole range of, of tools. And, you know, some of it's for censorship and some of it is for, is for greater surveillance. But at the end of the day, uh, for private companies that are, you know, doing business in that, those parts of the, the world, you know, it's just another risk they need to be aware of. Right. How much of, of this, you know, for, for a global company who has, uh, you know, their hand in businesses around the world, 
how much of this is based on geography and how much is this is based on sort of citizenship? You know, um, you know, GDPR famously reaches out to European citizens regardless of where they are. Yep. Yeah, no, that's a good question. For a lot of these idiots, within their own territory only. And so that's where you sort of the notion of digital sovereignty or cyber sovereignty, where the governments want to have the control of that information within their own borders. Uh, what we're seeing, though, and this is recently, we'll see what happens with uh, China and their companies. You know, they're forbidding as well now their foreign companies for turning over data abroad. And so it's almost the reverse going on too now. So it, you know, at the end of the day, it's for control. And so for GDPR, <laughs> it's you know it's protecting their their citizens. Um, so it's, so it's the, the flip side of it. Um, for some of these other countries, it's really just complete information control as far as they possibly can, but with a, pure, you know, with a focus really on their own, within their own domestic borders. And then that's the argument. And, and the concern really is not only that you know, it's going on there and that other countries may adopt that kind of model, but there's also you know, these c- countries are also taking and having bigger power in some international organizations that, that shape the standards and norms. And so you see, this, when you hear about the push for cyber sovereignty at the UN, for example, it's for pushing for more of these kind of norms that allow governments to do whatever they want within their borders, have complete access, and so forth, all in their auspices of, of sovereignty, when really it's for you know, controlling the narrative and controlling the information. And if those are the kind of norms and laws that are, are you know, the policies that start getting passed at the IGOs, uh, that also becomes troublesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining a, an extreme situation when we start seeing data centers being installed in embassies. Well, I mean, that's, that's a big issue where, where the data centers are, right? I mean, that's, uh, it absolutely has huge implications for the data centers, especially when you start thinking about some of the data localization requirements and the local data storage. But yeah, where, where the data centers are uh, is going to, I think that that's also going to be a, a big component as far as starting to think about you know, where your risks are and um, knowing where your data is even flowing through and what kind of access there is in those areas. All right. Well, Andrea Little-Limbago, thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. If you need some companionship while you're puttering around the house this weekend, check out Research Saturday. And my conversation with Daniel Katz from Norton LifeLock will be discussing their research encrypted chat apps doubling as illegal marketplaces. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. 
And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.